I figured with the weather turning and the warming and the NFL playoffs happening today that we'd do something a little lighter fare. I wanted to go with a sermon where we talked a bit about uh, abortion and, and sexuality. Maybe if we get a chance to get into some NFL controversies about kneeling, uh, maybe nuclear disarmament, uh, racism, and gun control. If I get to everything, we'll try to touch on all of those because I want, I want it to be a light day. But on this Sanctity of Life weekend, where some celebrate and others mourn, 45 years of the Supreme Court codifying the orthodoxy of our age and its ruling about the legality of abortion, it's worth starting here with a passage that Paul brings to bear as saying the most profound thing that a Christian needs to know in order to break with the orthodoxy of our time. And that's going to be the major theme of today, is my call, or really Jesus' call, for you to break with the orthodoxy of your age. What is the orthodoxy of my age, you wonder? Ah, well, excellent question. First of all, orthodoxy, if you don't know, orthodoxy means right belief, straight belief. It's like the thing that's right and acceptable, and fitting to believe. And so the orthodoxy of our age can be characterized by an essay I read recently from a young woman who I think was a senior at Princeton University. She's a classics major, which puts her in a category of seven whole humans in America. Thomas? Is Thomas even here? I said this joke, but he's... he's Classics majors, they're not everywhere. But she wrote this last year at this time, a letter to my leftist liberal friend, she said, and she began her letter this way. It was after the Women's March in, in D.C. She said, I am a feminist and have been raised one and maybe the worst kind of feminist because not only do I think that women are equal to men, I think they are better than men. I think women can not only do everything that men can do, but they can do it better than men can do it. They're more intelligent, they're more strong, and they can do it all with high heels on. She insisted. And she said, but I have to tell you that after scrolling my Facebook pages and scouring the images on social media, it became clear to me as I watched the sloganization of this gathering of women that the most important thing for women in our time seems to be, this is her argument, not mine, what was depicted in a thousand ways. It's my body. It's my choice. And she was stunned and saddened. Well, wait. It's more important for a woman to celebrate her ability to end a life than to create one? It's my body, my choice, my autonomy, my self-law, my self-sovereignty is the most important thing about me? That's what we're going to celebrate? That's what we're going to get together and herald and sing loudly and shout out loud with signs about and wear inappropriate hats? Read the papers. It's my body, it's my choice, but you know what they were doing? Is they were merely putting in emblematic form the orthodoxy of our time, which is simply this. I am my own. 
That's the most important doctrine in American life right now. I am my own. The most violent thing you could do to another is insist that another take into account another. Because I am my own. The worst thing you could do is have a law that would urge someone to think about someone besides themselves because I am my own. The worst thing anybody could ever be called or asked to do is something they don't want to do because I am my own. Oswald Chambers said that the essence of sin is my right to myself. I am my own. This is the, the root of all manner of the issues, even the ones that the Apostle Paul lays out here in 1 Corinthians 6 when he gives a catalog of the characteristics that denote the wicked who will not inherit the kingdom of God. At the root of all of them is this fundamental conviction out of which all action comes that at the end of the day and most central to my life is that I am my own. Alan Jacobs recently said in an article where there was some pondering about the fearfulness to Christian institutions, which are going to be under fire and maybe eventually lose federal funding, which means they'll lose students if they don't capitulate to modern mores about sexual teaching, that Christian orthodoxy about sexuality which says that the only kind of appropriate expression of sexuality is between a man and a woman in marriage, and there are no other kinds. That this is a violent and angry and hateful doctrine. This is an awful kind of teaching, says our world at the moment, who says, I am my own. And so, eventually, the fear is that Christian institutions will they'll lose protections, they'll lose accreditation. And he says, it's not that the, the people doing this think they're doing anything wrong. They're just obeying their religion, which is an unembodied Gnostic religion that has as its central feature, I am my own. So I call you today, as we listen to the Apostle Paul, to break to have the courage to break from this orthodoxy. Because it's not true, and it winds up being awfully degrading, and awfully dehumanizing, and awfully destructive. So listen to the Apostle Paul here, when he says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And as you start, you realize, like, oh, you know, the Apostle, when you read the Bible, you realize, these guys believe stuff. It's a little bit alarming. Like, the apostle believes that there's a coming state of affairs that some people will be a part of and other people will not. That's alarming. That's offensive. And he believes it. Of course, C.S. Lewis would say, I mean, uh, Dallas Willard, same difference, would say, when asked, hey, what's hell? And he said, well, hell is the best God can do for some people. There's this sense that if you are vitally committed to I am my own, then then the kingdom of God will not be a place that you will want to be. You won't be able to stand it. You won't be able to stand to be in a place where you're consumed, where everybody's consumed, not with themselves, but with God and each other. They'll have forgotten about themselves. They'll know that happy state. But the people in hell, the people outside the kingdom of God, these are people who have said, I am my own. I'd rather rule in 
hell and be a servant in heaven. And so he goes on and he says, here's some characteristics. Uh, neither, here, don't, don't be deceived, here's who will not inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral. Let's stop there. He's going to mention several sexual things. Fundamental to our age is this sense that I am my own and I am basically an animal. My sex drives are like my desires for a cheeseburger. You eat, you consume sexually. Big whoop. We're starting to see how badly that works out. What's behind the curtains of secrecy in this Me Too movement is people start to say, oh, you mean when people think they're animals and the stronger animal takes advantage of, harms, abuses this weaker animal, that that's an inadequate theology that results in harmful, destructive violence to women and sometimes to men? The sexually immoral, and he goes on male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, in every case, adulterers, in every case what you have is someone saying, my urge, my desire, my preference is the most important thing about me. I don't care about other selves. I care about what I want. I don't care what God says. I care about what I want. And I will and must act on it. And Paul says, at the root of these characteristic ways of being, so that they become who you are, is what will disqualify people from the kingdom of God. So that's good news. Now, I'm doing that because I feel the weight in the room. Do not be deceived, he says. Or, not just the sexually immoral or adulterous or male prostitutes or homosexual offenders, but he says, idolaters. Idolaters themselves. People who, as Keller might define it, make good things into ultimate things. As they decide to make their life based on something other than God. That these people also, at the heart of their worldview and practice, is this sense that I am my own. So I must decide how to make a life for myself. I must confer upon myself an identity. Keller, who I just mentioned a minute ago, mentions this great story about a woman he knew when he was first pastoring who lived in the trailer down the road from the church. And she was in a terribly abusive relationship. Her life was in shambles. She finally got away from this relationship. He saw her many years later. She had become a Christian she had started going to counseling, and he said, how did, how did, you just look great, you sound so good, what's happened? What, what's going on in your life to cause this flourishing? She, she said, well, I've started seeing a counselor for one, and, and she's really helped me come to terms with some things. She said, you've built your whole identity on getting men to care about you. You think that a man is going to determine your life. And so you wound up sacrificing your life to men who then abuse you. You think they're going to tell you who you are, and they destroy you. But you can't leave them because you need them. And the lady said, she's helped me to see that. She's helped me to see that I've based my life on what men think about me. So she's diagnosed my problem, right? But you know what? She doesn't have anything helpful to tell me to do. Because all she wants me to do is now turn my attention towards getting a career. She says, you just need to go to college. 
and, and get a good career and make a good job and then you'll be important and you'll feel better about yourself and you'll have some money and you'll be important. And the woman wisely said, she's just asking me to swap a traditionally female idol for a traditionally male idol. She's asking me to trade making my life about what the member of the opposite sex thinks about me to making my career and what it thinks about me the main thing in my life. I'm swapping things, but there's no solution there. She had come to see that what she needed was to know that she wasn't her own. And that she had a savior who, if she failed, had died for her who had committed himself long-term to her, who was for her, who made her, and who conferred her worth on her. You know, wife swapping's bad, and so is idol swapping. And we do it all the time. We try to get rid of one bad habit by picking up another one. We try to get rid of one bentness towards a created thing and exchange it for another. And Paul says, at the bottom of all of this is this sense that I am my own, and I must decide what my life is. We saw last week. Christ is your life. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. He tells you who you are. He gives you worth. He is the one who confers value. And he is the one who will show you what you are. You see as you go through this list, nor thieves, nor the greedy. The greedy with a money sickness, with an inappropriate relationship to money. The greedy say, I am my own. Therefore... I acquire. Therefore, I get. And what I get, I keep because it's mine. It doesn't matter if someone else might benefit from it. It's mine because I am my own. I spend for myself. I don't have to share for anybody else. I don't have to give to anybody else. It's mine. See? That's, that's a conservative sin. Some of the others are liberal ones. But we all, yeah, okay, here we go. Nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. What the Apostle Paul is trying to get at here is underneath every single one of these, and I've tried to make it not just about sex, ever, underneath every single one of these is I am my own, and therefore I decide. And see, what Augustine rightly noted is that a person, a man or a woman, has as many masters as they have vices. If you are your own and you are in complete obedience to your desires, you will just be tossed around throughout the day by whatever you happen to be feeling or wanting. There's no consistency to it. There's no trajectory for it. Except in these cases, he says these people who will not inherit the kingdom of God, what's happened is not just that they've acted this way, but these have become the characteristic features of their life. They say, I have these desires that I must obey, therefore that is what I am. I'm this sexual desire. I have this desire for drink that's preeminent over everything, so therefore that is what I am. They've given themselves over. They've surrendered themselves to something other than God. That's what all addiction is. That's what all idolatry is. And that's what always happens when you say, I am my own. You wind up surrendering to something, to some master who is not going to heal you. But you're sure they will. And when they don't, you'll swap it for another. 
And Paul says, these are people that you're acting like, Corinthians. That's what's important here. He's saying, Corinthians, you're acting like these people, like the wicked who won't inherit the kingdom of God. He's already gone through in this passage in, in the book of Corinthians, and he said, hey, you know, and it's interesting for us in a time of sexual inventiveness, he said, you have in your church a kind of sexual wrongness that not even pagans do. What's going on? He talks about all their factions, all their fighting. He talks about the lawsuits that they're having among each other, about what he'd say are trivial matters, and he gets on to the plaintiff and the defendant. He's mad at the defendant for causing the plaintiff to have to do something. Why'd you swindle him out of something? He's mad at the plaintiff for suing the defendant. Why don't you rather be wronged? We're going to live forever as we're one together. Why are we going to law against each other and in front of people who don't know God? There's all this sexual morality in Corinth. There's all this fighting. There's all this self-protection and greed. And so the apostles say, hey, guys, um, you're acting like the wicked who aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. You're performing actions that if you give yourself full vent to them, they're going to become characteristic of you like the wicked who will not inherit. But then he says this good thing. All of that, that's what you were. That's not true about you anymore. It's one of the most magnificent things about Christianity. Because we are, as as Corby said, we're pretty crummy people, but we're Christ's crummy people. And that's really good news. So he says, but you were washed. You used to do despicable things. You used to be so committed to, I am my own. You used to be characterized by your sexual immorality or by your greed or by deceiving other people, or by trying to manipulate people to get what you wanted. You used to do all that stuff, but you got washed of that filth. You got cleansed. God took a pressure washer to make you clean. And you've been set apart as God's prized and precious possession, his treasure. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. Now you're right with God. And when you await the judgment before entrance into the kingdom, you are hidden in Christ who has already taken your wrath away, so there's nothing to fear for you. You're in a whole different category. You've surrendered yourself, not to your sex desires or to your appetites, not to your, your desire for money and the security or the prestige it gives. You've surrendered yourself to Christ. Remember this. Now live like it. Come back to your senses. Live like who you are. And he starts going through with his own slogans, you know, my body, my choice, or the, the, the Corinthians apparently had some slogans. I have the right to anything, or everything is permissible for me. In your Bibles, if you're looking at it, they'll have quotation marks, because he's gotten a letter from Corinth, and he's addressing some of the statements that they make. They have this idea that because they're free in Christ, that means they can do whatever they want. They don't know that being free, that freedom isn't the freedom to do whatever you want. That's mastery. Being free, Christ setting you free makes you free not to do whatever you want. The freest person is the person who's not bound to their own emotions, desires, thoughts, and needing things to be the way they want it to be. Oh, I hope you know the freedom of that sometimes. So the psalmist can say, you have set my heart free to run in the path of your commands. 
Paul says, yeah, 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 everything's permissible for you, but not everything is beneficial. When you start to think, I am my own, then you don't ask the question, how does my behavior affect someone else? The whole abortion debate does that. It takes away the whole idea of the abortion and it makes it about, yeah, you're just trying to extend patriarchy because you hate women. Pro-life people, all they really want is to despise women. There's no mention of fetuses or babies or pregnant things. None of that. My body, my choice. What do you want to me what to do with my body? No woman owns her body. No man owns his body. If you can make your body, you own it. Everybody here who created themselves, you own yourself. Can I just have a show of hands of anybody who made themselves? Anybody who keeps themselves alive with the breath in their lungs and keeps their heart beating, you are your own. Anybody? And screw tape letters, the devil says, senior devil, the young one says, what do you want to do anytime you can is encourage the sense of ownership. Get humans to believe they own stuff, that they own each other, that they own themselves, because it's the most ridiculous kind of diction. It's the most ridiculous kind of thing. It sounds so funny in heaven, and it sounds so funny in hell. Because in the end, we'll see who people belong to. You'll either belong to Satan or to God. That's what the devils say. And the Bible seems to say that too. Nobody owns themselves. Unless you made yourself. Does it seem like I'm really mad? I'm not that mad. This feels heavy though. These Corinthians have gotten in their heads that what they do with their body doesn't really matter. They've adopted a kind of Gnostic religion as well, which has said, it just matters, it just matters what I believe. Our bodies are going to be destroyed, and they don't really matter. So it doesn't matter what we do with them. We can, we can be as sexually immoral as we want. It's just like eating. You can eat a steak, or you can, you can have sex with somebody that you want. Just, it's just an appetite. And Paul says, no, 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 the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. In fact, when you believed in Christ, you became one with Christ. And so what's happened to him has happened to you, and what's going to happen to him is going to happen to you. He was raised from the dead, and if you're linked to him, so will you be. Bodies matter a lot. Christianity is very different from the orthodoxy of our age because it says we are an embodied religion. Our God took on flesh, our flesh. And Christianity says that our faith will always be embodied. It will always result in practices in the world. It will take shape in the way we tend and deal with other races, people outside of our tribes. It will shape the way we do our work. It will shape the way we treat our bodies and other bodies. It will treat the, the shape the way we spend our money. He who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. He wants you to see, you know, you're one with Jesus, like you're married to him. And, you know, you can't, though you may think you can, you can't be barely married. Like, you either are or you aren't. And he says, if you're one with Christ, then you can't go to a prostitute. That's like taking Christ to the prostitute. Who would do that? That's what you're doing when you defy the Lord's word and say, I am my own. And he gets down to the end and he says, don't you know you're the, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? 
that God has decided to take up residence in you, in your body, which you think doesn't even matter. Well, you know why? Because that body is going to live on forever and ever, and it's going to be, it's going to be a lot better than the one you've got now. One of the greatest and most tragic things about being a pastor, firmly in the middle of middle age, I guess, and maybe, maybe two-thirds through, I don't know. I don't know how long I'll live. Hopefully middle age. Is that you get to find out on a daily basis how many creative ways that the human body can break down. Oh, it's fantastic. You get to know older people and you see, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that can happen. You can just wake up in the morning and your formerly functioning body can malfunction in ways you never even conceived of. Your organs, your joints, your bones, your muscles, your tendons, all of it. Your mind, woo! This is fantastic. And it would be a point of great despair if we weren't united to the Lord, who is our life, who says that one day these bodies will be like unto his glorious body. What you do in the body matters because this body is going to be with you. It's just going to be all fixed up, gussied up in good ways. And you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And if God has decided to live in you, that's because he likes you. He never lives in a neighborhood that he hates. He takes up resonance in you because he has aspirations for you. He wants to make you into something. And now you are his possession. He says you are not your own. Break from the orthodoxy of your age. Have the courage to believe that you are not your own. It's a comfort. We just said it earlier. Wise theologians have noted, as many people have, as many of you have, when we are in our right minds, I know this to be my only comfort, that I am not my own, but I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's my only comfort. It's a reassuring comfort. I don't actually own myself. I don't actually have to look out for myself. I don't actually have any ownership rights of myself at all. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. One of the things that will require for you to lean into this reality that you're not your own, that you actually belong to Christ who lives in you, you're in him and he's in you, something you're going to keep discovering more and more about, is that it's going to be difficult to keep believing it. Like implicit in believing that you're not your own is the struggle of sometimes thinking that you are. Yesterday, I made a call, service call, about which I have made confession of sin. I called our plumber first, his eight, not plumber, uh, appliance repairman. It's been eight days since our warranty work has not been completed on our dishwasher. And uh, he was going to be there on Wednesday, and he was going to be on Thursday, and he was going to be there on Saturday. So I called on Saturday about 100 times, and I finally got him on try 102. And my first question was, uh, so I was just calling to see what time you were going to be here today. It was already like 5 o'clock. I knew he wasn't coming. I was just being a little snide. <laughs> just seeing what time you were going to come today since you said you were coming today. You remember when you said you were coming today? I didn't say it quite like that, but that's what it felt like inside. He said, well, I can't come. I didn't get the part. I said, oh, really? What's, what, what is happening with these parts? So then I said, can I call the people with the parts? So I call the people with the parts, and I, I hope that they don't get the message. <laughs> and I wasn't angry. I was just employing sardonic humor that was hopefully cutting and 
somewhat aggressive, but not overly so. And I said, I'm just wondering, after eight days of not being able to find this part, if you know when this part might arrive. And I'm wondering, is, is it an exotic part? Perhaps, perhaps handcrafted? Because I'm a little mystified that a part that presumably would appear in every single dishwasher that is in America, it's a Maytag, would not be available in eight days. So I'm just wondering if someone had with tiny hands to make it on demand. I don't know what I actually said, but I said some of those things. And I've asked the Lord to forgive me because it wasn't good. You know what happened in that moment? I forgot. I thought I was my own. And I thought I had to manipulate, and I thought I had to shame, and I thought I had to um, put these people in their place because they've made me wait, because I thought that us having to wait on getting our dishwasher was something that, was, that warranted me dishonoring God and dishonoring them. But in reality, stuff happens. I forgot. I'm not my own. I thought I had to look out for myself, and I had to use my, uh, my you know, extensive vocabulary and quick wit to make them want to cry. I'm just kidding. I was just a jerk face because I thought I am my own, and it only matters what I think, and it doesn't matter what I do to anybody else in this moment. But if you start leaning into I'm not my own, I don't belong to myself, oh, it's a comfort because you realize I don't have to defend myself. I don't. I don't have to defend myself. It's really, it's really freeing when you have a decision to make and you're so scared. Oh my gosh, if I make this decision, what if I'm wrong? Well, who cares if you're wrong? You're not your own. You're superintended by the Savior who's able by his mighty power to raise the dead and that power is at life in you and he's working out all things in conformity with the purpose of his will and his deepest aspiration is to make you like your son Jesus, his son Jesus. The decisions you have to make are not that important. Relative to that, because he can work all things to your good. When you believe that you belong to him, oh, it's freeing. When you're worried about your kids, oh, how glorious it is to say, God, these are your kids. They belong to you. They've been baptized into Christ. They're your possession. Act, protect, move, guide. How freeing it is to think, No longer, these kids are my own. So if I worry about them enough when they're away from me, then they'll be okay. That's what we modern people think. If I exploit my responsibility disorders enough, if I can just worry about my kids enough, my worry will fix them, protect them, help them. I'm good at it. It's freeing to lean into this idea that I'm not my own. And if you're going to do that, you're going to have some struggle. A friend recently sent me something from Auden, Auden, W.H. Auden. I said, he said, I don't know much about him. I said, well, he was a famous poet, really remarkable, Anglican, brilliant. And, um, and, and he struggled with homosexuality. I said, well, actually, he didn't struggle with homosexuality. He stopped it. He stopped struggling with homosexuality. And Auden was reported to have said, I know that my religion expressly forbids this. But I'm going to keep on doing it. I don't care. And one of the things that happens to us sometimes when we think that we are our own is that we just stop fighting. We stop struggling. 
and we think that the struggle is unusual. That's what happens for modern people. Modern people who think, I am my own, they think, I have strong desires, and if I don't obey them, then I'm going to injure myself. If I have any conflict within me, I have to lean into whatever will make the conflict go away. And they don't realize this. Christians, anyways, united to Christ, you're going to have conflict. There's going to be warring factions within yourself. And so you're going to struggle. But if you can start to struggle, to say, no, 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 I don't want to belong to myself. I want to live as one who belongs to Christ. You start getting energized. It'll affect how you talk to God. It'll affect what you expect from God. Do you ever know something about your life that you should change and you know I can't change it? Russell Moore writes an essay about people saying, I struggle. Yeah, I struggle with pornography. I struggle with anger. But most people don't say, I struggle with anger, so I'm just giving into it. I'm just going to become an angry person. That's it. That's who I am. But one of the things that can happen when you realize that these patterns in you, or God calls you to something, you hear the scripture and you respond to it and you think, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. I hate the sound of that. Oh, but one of the things you can do, because the promise from the God who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus and who will keep you strong and blameless until the end, the God who has called you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure, the God who Paul says, may he increase your love, you can go to him And say, I'm so mad I can't stand it, God. And I know I shouldn't be angry, but it feels good to be angry. I like being angry, and I don't want to not be angry. And I know I should be kind to that person I was just angry to, but I'd rather not. Will you change me? I can't change myself. You start to wrestle like Jacob grabbing a hold of God, as Walker Percy said. You start wrestling, saying, I won't let go until you bless me. I belong to you. You want me to honor you with my body? Then you're going to have to make it happen. Apart from you, you said, I can do nothing. The final episode of the Queen of season two. Queen Elizabeth II is visiting with her prime minister, who's who's told her he's going to retire. She did not want him to. She's in a difficult pregnancy. She wanted him to stay on for stability of the government. And she says to him after he's told her this bad news, Prime Minister, I've been queen not yet ten years. And in that time, I've had three prime ministers. Ambitious men, intelligent men, brilliant men. And not one of them has stayed the course. A confederacy of elected quitters. A confederacy of elected quitters. I was like, dang, QE2. (laughs) And then she dropped the royal mic and just walked out. A confederacy of elected quitters. Because they've all been too weak, too old, or too frail, she said. Confederacy of elected quitters. See, the queen can't quit. That's her calling. She's stuck with the job. And your savior won't quit either. 
And the important thing for us is to keep looking to him who stays on the throne, who's going to see you through the end, who has washed you and who has owned you and who has said, I am not going to give you up and I can't. And so you and I don't quit in the fight. Don't quit and and succumb to this disastrous and poisonous notion that you are your own because emphatically you are not. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And if you believe that, and you keep wrestling with the Christ who stays on the throne forever, then you will be able to honor God with your body, and not just your body, with your thoughts, with your lips, with your life. Amen.